everyone. Welcome to the Call Me Al podcast. My name is Al Condalusi. Uh, I'm your host uh, for this podcast, which is um, sponsored by the Interdependence Network and produced by Side Projects um, Incorporated. Uh, and uh, we really appreciate you tuning in um, to this uh, particular episode. Um, I'm so delighted to have an opportunity uh, for a conversation with a um, a friend of mine who we go back a number of years, uh, Janelle Breeze Biagiani. And Janelle and I have been, have been colleagues and friends over many years, uh, in terms of work we've done, uh, in brain injury rehabilitation. And, and Janelle is really a, a, an expert and certified grief loss, uh, uh, counselor. I mean, Janelle has uh, done some, amazing things. And uh, um, most recently, um, her book, Life Losses, Healing for a Broken Heart, uh, was published in 2014 uh, by Ranica House Press. And, um, and so, Janelle, welcome to, uh, to the Call Me Al podcast. Thank you for having me, Al. It's a great pleasure to be here. It's it, it, it's really a lot of fun, Janelle. You and I just had an opportunity uh, uh, when I was up in your hometown of um, Victoria, British Columbia, to um, have lunch together and to catch back up and to kind of find out more about what was going on with our families. And and it was so it was so wonderful to um, to spend that face to face time with you. But, but I'm equally excited about having this opportunity for. Um, for our conversation on the Call Me Out podcast, so uh, uh, Janelle, if you could get started, can you can you share a little bit with uh, with our listeners um, uh, a little bit about your background? Uh, we know that you're an expert in in grief and in loss, and you've done some amazing things there. But can you give us a little profile of who is who is Janelle? Sure. Um, so, you know, I'm a mom and a grandma, and I'm a community-oriented person. And I, you know, professionally had actually started out in my studies to be an accountant and uh, loved hmm. working with numbers and those kind of things. But as life would have it, it took a sudden turn and changed everything for me about 30 years ago. So what happened at that time was my brother, Brian, who was 39 years old, suffered a subarachnoid hemorrhage, uh, which literally blew his brain apart and left enough to automate his vital organs. And he was in a mm. coma for uh, 10 days and then passed away. And that was very um, traumatic for our entire family. Certainly nothing that was, you know, anybody could be prepared for. And I struggled a lot with his death because uh, he was the eldest of seven kids. I was the middle one. Him and I were exceptionally close. Uh, but he also had a wife and three young children. Her mom was still alive and uh, five other siblings besides me. But I struggled with it. And as I was trying to continue my studies and I was working for an accounting firm, um, I really couldn't get a handle on my emotions around his death and allowing myself to grieve. That was where I knew I was, I, I tried reaching out and couldn't seem to get anybody to agree with me that I was stuck. It was more like, okay, you're doing, you're doing fine. Like just keep on going. That happened in March, 1989. And then the following year in May, 1990, my husband, who was a member of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and a 
police officer, was hit by a car while operating his police motorcycle, suffered a brain injury as well. And he was in a coma for four and a half days in the hospital for three weeks and, and should not have come home when he did. But I brought him home because they, uh, we were in a fairly small town. They didn't have uh, a neural ward for him to be on. So it was, you know, just in an award, the hospital couldn't cope with his behavior. So I, I brought him home. And unfortunately, he died five and a half months after I brought him home of a heart, heart attack, which really was quite catastrophic and, and had there been a team of doctors there they told me that they would not have been able to resuscitate him so he was 37 years old so mm. those events put me into quite a um, you know a deep depression and on top of that my good friend Ruth died of a brain injury two weeks before my husband and she had been three years post injury and her and I were very close friends I, you know, again, just can only say that I just met life at this crossroads, feeling mm. very afraid and didn't know what to do. And I had two young children who were 10 and 12 years old and, um, you know, had to make some decisions when my husband came home. And I actually left my job at the accounting firm just a few months before I came home. And that was in response to my inability to you know, come out of this tailspin emotionally about my brother's death. So, but then when it happened to my husband, when he got, you know, injured, I realized, you know, life, you know, puts us on these paths. I was home to look after him, so I was grateful for that. So after mm-hmm. he died, I um, had kept journals during um, the five months he was alive, and that was just more my um, personality. But it also was being an accountant, <laughs> recording things, being married to a police officer who kept notebooks. And knowing our court system, and at that time, there was no reason to believe that he would not survive his injuries, but we also knew that it could be seven to eight years before his case actually went to court. So I started to keep mm. notes. So after he died, I, um, people read those journals, and they're like, oh, you should put this into a book. And um, for me, it was like it was loud once it had been written down. I, I may not have been able to say it out loud, but I, I, I had the ability to write it. So I wrote my first book called Head Injuries to Silent Epidemic, and then that went on to be revised and called The Change of Mind, One Family's Journey to Pain Injury. And that's how I got started. When those books came out, then in Penticular, which was fairly small, had a small group of people who were meeting basically in coffee shops trying to get the South Okanagan uh, Brain Injury Association going. Um, it came to me and said, can you help? And so I did and worked with part of them. And then I went on to the board of the BC Brain Injury Association. I'm a member of Brain Injury Canada Association and have just worked to dedicate the last 30 years to helping families, survivors of brain injury to have a better life because what we do know is that they can have the same expectancy as anybody else. What happened in our family was just, you know, the darkest of the dark, but it highly mm-hmm. possible that that would happen. Uh, so I dedicated mm-hmm. my life to that. And then about 10 years ago, I decided that I would like to get my designation as a counselor so that I could officially help people in the counseling realm opposed to just mm-hmm. advocacy. And so I, I went on to become a registered professional counselor and have been blessed to work with people who and families who have been impacted by pregnancy, but then also through catastrophic um, life changes, whether that's you know, an injury, a sudden death, um, you know, losses, loss of people. And I think that's what I've been honored to come to learn is that it's never just this 
thing. It, it, you hold it up to light, and one loss equals many losses for people, mm-hmm. and help them mm-hmm. untangle that um, has been particularly mm-hmm. rewarding for me to do that work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you know, your, 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 your stuff has been so, so powerful. You know, I've read, um, uh, your books, um, and, um, you know, have heard you present. So, um, you know, familiar with, um, with, uh, the, the, you know, the, I don't know, the, the compassion and spirit that you bring, um, uh, to, to your work. And obviously, um, your own personal experiences, uh, and family experiences, uh, you know, create that deep set. And, and all of us face, um, um, struggles and losses in our lives and, and grief that, I'm, that we encounter. And, and we're sort of taught, you know, you got to tough it on. You got to just, you know, work through it. It's, um, you know, these things happen in life kind of, kind of reactions. And, um, the thing I really, I really have, have, have loved about your work is that you have, um, you have really allowed people to uh, process through um, what they're what they're going through, and you know, in your book, there's uh, all the your book life losses. There's some uh, really um, uh, you know just basic yet so useful and helpful hints and and recommendations uh, that you make. Um, uh, that, uh, that, that I think those kinds of things, uh, are so helpful and, and, and so useful to an individual or a family, uh, who might be going through, through loss. Uh, but one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, you know, it was really interesting, uh, when, when, when I was reading through your, your, your work and, and, and obviously as, as, as you read, um, uh, the, your material, you know, you think about your own, situation but you you really um have an have an interesting bifurcation in in your book life losses that that really speak to um individuals who are who are experiencing uh loss um or grief um in the loss of a loved one um but you also write about and talk about compassion fatigue which is um you know which which is really um, you know, a bona fide, uh, challenge that unfolds when people are taking care of other folks, um, in, in their lives. Could you speak a little bit to compassion fatigue and, and, and share, uh, with our listeners, um, a little bit of, of, of that phenomena and maybe some, uh, some things that you, uh, have found helpful when you were caring for people in your life? that were really, that were struggling or that you ultimately lost? Sure. Um, it is, it is an interesting, um, topic because people are very concerned about compassion fatigue, caregiver fatigue. And yet on the outside looking in, we still have this expectation that if we just tell them to pace themselves, they, that they'll be fine. And yet, and, and particularly in Canada, the way our system works is that the family, really does have the burden of care. And I use that term burden of care with great respect. And, and I know that they don't think it's a burden. Um, and that's how I was too. Because I, I've often said to people, you know, hope begins with a heartbeat. The moment you know your loved one is alive, you are, and in particular around injury, you know, brain injury, you are so grateful that they have 
survived. And long before you know what the impact could be for them or for your family as a whole, families step up to the plate with this gratitude that and they're hoping for the best. But when our system continually says, we don't have the money to provide the services, the family can do more, and the family is doing more and more and more, um, it is very wearing. And we're talking about people who don't have the luxury of leaving their jobs necessarily to stay home and care for their loved one. And I have seen it in families where, you know, they... Very blessed in our family that my husband's wages continued to come in to home and look after him. That doesn't happen normally for people. So often, if it's the major breadwinner, the other person is working a job or two jobs to try and keep the family afloat, plus take care of them. There is no time. There is no time to pace yourself. You then become the legal beagle. You are an advocate. You are trying to wayfind uh your way navigating a system that is like just so set up with barriers to, to prevent people mm-hmm. from getting access to service and it's exhausting. And then you may have you have children and they're trying to, you know, that, that person's trying to deal with children or these, it can also be aging parents and an adult child has had to move back home with them because the adult child has been injured. So the fatigue is real. So saying to somebody, just pace yourself, isn't going to cut it. So what I've said to people mm-hmm. is, you know, there isn't anybody that I know. There's not a man or a woman that I know that has forgotten the luxury of having a bubble bath or sitting on the deck and having a glass of wine with a friend and just enjoying themselves. They haven't forgotten how to do that. Those are lost luxuries to them when you are providing this level of care. So what we really need to do on the outside is be able to provide respite, to be able to find resources if um, their family financially has been impacted so that that person, if we want them to do more, we need to empower them to do more financially uh, as well, right? And to provide them Mm -hmm. with respite. So it is real. And then the concern that I have with this is that when it goes unnoticed, unresponded to, that those individuals... um, are facing their own mental health issues, and that decline is real emotionally, and so it impacts their health on many levels. And we can look at where the caregiver themselves with that mental health mm-hmm. issues that are coming up can spiral down into addiction issues. Like it, there's all kinds of unintended consequences that go with this. So I think it's real yeah. that we look at it differently. And people who do want to yeah. look after their loved one, but that doesn't mean that they don't need the help. Yeah, yeah, that 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 really um, is is powerful. You know, I, there isn't any of us that don't have those kinds of experiences uh, in our life that we have to, you know, that we that, that we're, we're we're dealing with, and and that 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 fatigue, that caregiver fatigue that you mentioned, uh, you know, obviously there was a real thing. There was there was another thing that I was really uh, taken by um, in your. Um, in your book that I wanted to just get, you know, a little bit further thoughts from you on you, you make the case and you do it a number of times through, through your writings. And I've, I've heard this in your presentations as well, is that the goal um, is not to get over grief, right. And, and, and to sort of put it behind you, but, you know, you, you, you write very eloquently about 
the notion is that the, the real goal in dealing with loss is to integrate. Can you speak a little bit more about that, that phenomenon? Because I think most people think that, you know, when you're dealing with grief, the goal is to get over it, get over it, get it, get it behind you. And you really point out that, that you never get grief, uh, behind you, that it really becomes something that become, it changes you. It becomes just a part of you. Can you speak a little bit more to that? Sure. Um, so grief, the experience alone will change a person and then the journey changes the person. And from the outside in, again, when this is imposed on people, it's often people who either haven't done their own work of healing or haven't experienced this to know that you can't get over losing a loved one. And so for even a brain injury, when that person is sitting there before you and they're no longer the same person that they were before, there's a level of grieving that goes with that. You don't get over it, but learning how to integrate that into your life. And when I say that, it's about the person who is grieving, uh, learning how to allow themselves to live, to fully live and not just exist. Because when people don't get the opportunity to mourn and grieve and they get stuck in that pain, um, they stop living. They stop enjoying life and, and there's no joy, there's no fun. And, and all of us can probably find somebody that we know and say, oh, yeah, that person is just, you know, really unbearable to be around. They're negative. They're unhappy. They just look unhappy. They sound unhappy. Um, mm-hmm. And that's because they haven't been given the space to do the work. And so often when, when I'm working with people, it's about unraveling that for them to say, you just lost your best friend and or you just mm. lost a son to an overdose. This has changed you. And yes, it, it, it will change how your life is going to be. And I'm very careful about um, that, especially in the early days of grief to say to people like, you know, this is about integrating and moving forward in life. But I, so I start at the place of it's not the goal isn't to get over this. It's about how do you um, move forward and how do you honor your loved one? How do you honor yourself and how do you navigate life again in this new way? And I don't even use the word the new norm. A lot of people like to say that. I don't use that. I find that mm-hmm. I can be kind of jarring to people and say, like, I don't want this yeah. to be my new norm. I didn't ask for this, right? right? So right, it's not right. about getting over. And, uh, you know, pe- we want to impose these time limits to people. Well, it's been six months since they died. You should be fine. You should be okay. And it, grieving doesn't work that way. And, and part of it is people understanding sort of the function of mourning and grieving. So bereavement is the call. That's the event that's happened. And then mm-hmm. when we're mourning, that's how we feel on the inside. That's our response, internal response to the loss. And grieving is bringing those feelings to the outside and having, you know, a way to give expression to our mourning in a safe and appropriate way, which often is why funerals are very important in memorial services, because it gives people an opportunity to um, give those expressions. And that work comes from Dr. Alan Wolfelt out of Colorado, and he's just profound mm-hmm. in helping people navigate the grief journey. And that's where I've, I've studied with him and, and learned that the most. But mm-hmm. Sure. This is about how do you integrate this because now it becomes the fabric of your life. It changes your worldview. It changes how you respond to the world around you, how you respond to people in your life, and how you even respond to yourself. Um, mm-hmm. How do you build that in and then allow yourself yeah. to live, really live, and yeah. just exist? Nice. Yeah. You know, uh, we we could go on and on uh, because there's just so many uh, 
nuances and, and pieces of this this uh, uh, topic that that you um, have crystallized uh, uh, so well in 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 your book Life Losses and in your previous readings and the trainings that you do. And one of the things I just wanted the listeners to know is that if you want to um, find out more information in terms of uh, connecting with Janelle, um, you can go to her website, which is www.janellebb, that's J-A-N-E-L-L-E-B-B.com. And um, the website is full of tips and, and quotes and a whole variety of things that are helpful. But let me, let me ask one more question as we get ready to, you know, wrap up uh, this conversation, Janelle, that, that I also thought was really it was profound. It, it, it seems like a simple thing, but, but, uh, but to me, I, 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 you know, I really felt that you, you really nailed this issue. And that is, um, the, 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 the juxtaposition or the comparison between having sympathy for someone versus having empathy with someone. And, um, you know, that often in grief and in loss, when you encounter, uh, other people who come forward to, um, you know, to support you, uh, that support is oftentimes cloaked in sympathy uh, for you, that they, they feel bad uh, for what you're experiencing and what you're going through um, in, in the loss that you've encountered or, or that someone that you love has encountered. And, and, and you really make a clear distinction between sympathy and empathy. Can you just say a word or two about that, Janelle, because I thought that was really an, a, a, such an interesting piece uh, to the puzzle. Mm-hmm. So uh, again, this came from work where my studies with Rainbows International and working with children, and they were really clear in our trainings that sympathy is about feeling sorry for the person that, of what they're going through. And empathy is about feeling what's present to them. Mm-hmm. So if, if something mm-hmm. happens and you feel, say, I feel so bad for you, or, um, you know, I just can't believe that's happened to you. I mean, you're feeling sorry for them and people don't want that sympathy. They don't necessarily want that pity, uh, but mm-hmm. to have empathy for a person is to meet them where they're at. And so validating what they're going through, even if you've never experienced it or understand it, but listening to what they're saying. And so when they tell you something's happened, then to validate it by saying that's that is hard. That's hard. I can mm. hear how painful that is for you. Um, it builds yeah. a whole other level of trust when people are talking to yeah. you if they have empathy over sympathy. And the other thing I want to say about empathy, and this comes from Brene Brown and her work, is it's just phenomenal talking about shame and vulnerability for people uh, and that the shame builds disconnection in, in people and the families and our community. And the only anecdote to shame is empathy. Uh, but empathy requires that we have the ability to reach out and make those connections. So, uh, again, empathy really is the foundation of healing if we're going to support mm. people healing for, some, for, That's, for everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Such an important point, uh, Janelle, that, that uh, you know, most people just on the surface uh, don't think about. I, I know, you know, a lot of the listeners to, uh, to the podcast um, are either advocates, family members, uh, individuals who are experiencing disabilities. And, and, you know, the whole pity, sort of feeling bad for someone, uh, that, that, you know, uh, that just um, 
that just makes, you know, folks go bonkers, right? They, they don't want to be pitied, right? They certainly want to be understood. They want to be supported. They want to, you know, there, there, there's, there's an action and, and a receiving side of the equation, but they don't want to be pitied. They don't want to be, you know, be, be perceived in a sympathetic way. So, so, so I, I, I you know, now obviously sympathy, um, is, you know, a sympathy is a, a form of compassion. You know, there's there's no sense. I mean, it, it it plays a role, no question. Um, it's just that I think uh, some of the barriers that can come up with that um, can really be can really be challenging. Um, it can be, and I know. So, sorry, go ahead. Oh no, no, I, I was just going to say that just, you know, as we're getting ready to wrap up, I wanted to, though, I didn't want to lose the opportunity to say what's next for Janelle uh, Breeze Biagioni in terms of your own work. Uh, You know, I think when we were, oh, I remember in our, when we we had lunch, you were, you were talking about perhaps another book and uh, tell us a little bit about where you're going now with your practice, with your, um, your focus um, in, 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 from a professional perspective. Sure. And I just want to make a comment about the sympathy and empathy, because one of the things that I learned about myself is that if I'm feeling sympathetic towards a person, it's about my agenda wanting to fix the situation for them. If I'm being empathetic to them, it's about me being present with them and helping them find the solution that's best for them. So that's kind of a way that those two separate it. Nice, nice. And it's so clear. It's so it's so digestible the way you just articulated it. So what's next, Janelle? What's going on? What's happening? Yeah, so next thing for me is I am working on a book called The Shadows, Mental Health Addiction and Brain Injury, uh, because those intersections have become very apparent over the years uh, that I've been working with clients and families and how do we help them. And certainly um, globally, but particularly looking in Canada here at our opioid crisis and knowing that that link to people who are incarcerated and on the streets and have mental health and addiction issues, that that comes right back to brain injury. So I'm working on that book now. Um, And the other thing is we, my charity, Constable Gerald Breeze Center for Traumatic Life Losses, uh, we just held our first national day of collaboration, which is about conversations across the country with families, survivors, government, all levels of government and service providers. And we are moving to establish that to an annual event and looking for some systemic change in Canada to bring, uh, to close the gaps in services and supports for families. And uh, also looking to host a national LearnX day, which will go from province to province across the country every year. Like they'll be in a different province so that we can bring together people who wow. are working in this field to develop best practices and to share knowledge and information and encouragement and, um, you know, perhaps just brainstorming ideas that you, and how best to serve people in this area. So lots on the go for us. And wow. I'm very excited yeah. to be part of it. <laughs> you- you're amazing. Your, your, your energy is boundless and, and your contribution, uh, to creating better communities is, 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 uh, is so powerful. And, and, uh, um, you know, we've been talking with, um, uh, Janelle Breeze Biagioni, uh, who is a grief and loss, um, a counselor, a author, a presenter, um, a person who has just done amazing kinds of things uh, in this most powerful and important uh, issue, and that is dealing with with loss or or dealing with uh, um, you know the kinds of struggles that that happen 
in the way of life. Um, I, uh, Janelle, I want to really thank you for taking a uh, time, uh, today, uh, in, in this podcast, but, but more, I, I really want to thank you for the contribution that you've made, the passion that you bring, uh, to this, uh, this powerfully important, uh, subject and for all the things that you're doing really internationally in, in helping people, um, um, navigate through the challenges of life. Thank you so much for taking time with us today. Well, thank you for having me. And I do have to say, Al, like, I know it's been about 20 years since we first started talking and meeting, and you truly have been an inspiration for me to become that voice for people who uh, should be heard and are not heard. And I and I talk about you all the time to people and give you credit for that because you really have inspired me to step out in a much bigger way. And I appreciate that. Thank you. Well, thank you. You're, you're very, you're very, very kind. So, um, uh, we're, we're going to wrap up, um, this particular episode. You've been listening to the call me Al podcast. That's, um, that's, uh, sponsored by the interdependence network. You can check out the interdependence network, um, and the work uh, that, that we're doing there at, uh, our website, which is buildingsocialcapital.org. 